Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Katie, here's a tip in case you're ever trying to seize the crown of England, or I guess if you It's were, on my to-do list. If you were trying to seize it several hundred years ago, the Plantagenets are really, really not okay with each other. They fight all the time, and it's not too hard to set them off. Well, and we've seen this so many times in our Eleanor of Aquitaine episode. We've got wife against husband, son against father, and brother against brother. And in our more recent episode on Eleanor's son, Richard the Lionheart, there's more brother against brother, followed by some begging and pleading and patronizing forgiveness. Yeah, I would say that it's definitely a trait of the family. And It's a useful trait for a would-be trader. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about one of those traders in particular, Roger Mortimer, and his abuse of the Plantagenet's greatest weakness, plus his superb battle skills, end up earning him a brief dictatorship in England. And some people call it the age of treason, if that gives you an idea how it's going to go. Not quite as good as the age of reason. But what makes him the greatest trader? That's what we're going to talk about today. So who is Roger Mortimer? He's the descendant of Norman Knights who came over with William the Conqueror, but he was born in 1287 during the reign of Edward I of England. I think Edward has possibly the best king's nickname ever, Edward Longshanks. I love that one. It's really good. So the Mortimers are really close to Edward I and the royal family. Roger's grandfather is a good friend of the king's and a close ally, and Roger's mother is a relative of the queen. So so the the Mortimers and the Crown are pretty tight with each other. Well, and they're also quite wealthy, which is a nice combination. At age 14, Roger marries, and that combines his very extensive lands with those of another rich girl, Joan de Jeanville, and they form this super estate on the English-Welsh border. And in 1304, Roger's father is killed in battle, and even though... Roger is 17, married, and has several children. He becomes the ward of a royal favorite, Pierce Gaveston. Which I just think that's so strange that you're not quite of age yet, even though you're off fighting, you're married, you have kids. Yeah, I don't know what the criteria was then. I, I guess it's just a patronage system. But anyways, Roger goes about building up quite a reputation for a medieval baron, at least, soldiering and adding lands to his already extensive holdings and fighting. And according to Ian Mortimer, who is a biographer of Roger's, but no relation, um, Roger becomes one of the most experienced soldiers of his age with a particular penchant for the joust. So I think we have a pretty good picture of, of Roger going into this episode. But we have some changes at the top. In the meantime, we've gotten a new king. In 1307, Longshanks dies, and his son, Edward II, takes the throne. And he looks like a king, according to contemporary accounts. He's very handsome and very tall, but he's also very weak and very easy to manipulate. And luckily, we have a manipulator ready in the wings, Pierce Gaveston, who is a friend of Edward II's and possibly now his lover. And the politics of this relationship get very nasty. Edward pours favors on Gaveston, land, money, titles. He even gives him the regency when he travels abroad to marry Isabella of France. But 
Unsurprisingly, because barons don't like anything, the barons don't <laughs> like this. And in 1311, a 21 member baronial committee drafts a document called the Ordinances, demanding that Edward relinquish some of his powers and that Gaveston be banished. Gotta throw that in there. Yeah. So Edward makes like he'll do it. He banishes Gaveston and then allows him to come back. And the barons aren't gonna play that way. They're, they're not gonna have sort of a half concession to their demands. Be a man of your word. So they seize Gavston and they execute him. So that's one possible lover down for Edward II already. But Edward just doesn't take the hint that maybe he at least needs to play it cool with his favorites a little bit. He takes a new favorite, this time Hugh Dispenser. And Hugh has pretty impressive connections of his own, too. He's married to Eleanor de Clare, and uh, she happens to be Edward I's granddaughter, so more royal connections there. And after hooking up with the king, Hugh Dispenser starts to add to his land and influence, of course, getting all sorts of favors. Meanwhile, Edward is losing his own influence. He's defeated in 1314 by Robert the Bruce. And if you're trying to to place this in your mental timeline, this is around the Braveheart period, and it looks like Scotland will be free. But he's got bigger problems than, than just Robert the Bruce. It looks like the barons are at it again. But not Mortimer, right? Because Mortimer is a good ally to the throne. He's He's got all these old connections, right? <laughs> no. No, Sarah, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> because he really doesn't like Hugh Dispenser. And in fact, the Dispenser's land backs up to the Mortimer's lands. And of course, during this time, as we've seen so many times, it is all about land. So they're like the Hatfields and McCoys of Old England. Yeah, just feuding and not getting along at all. So when Hugh starts to get a little pushy and trying to move into South Wales and Mortimer's territory... Roger Mortimer decides that he would rather defend his own interests, the interests of his family, the interests of his land, rather than support his king. So he joins the earls of Hereford, Lancaster, and Pembroke, who are also sort of antsy with Edward II, giving out all his favors and all that. So they all join in rebellion. And they have (laughs) another really good name choice here. They call themselves the Contrarians. And in August 1321, they march to London and make Edward banish some of the favorites. That that sounds really familiar. It does sound familiar because it's exactly what happened just a few years earlier with peers. But Edward isn't isn't willing to just... uh, you know, get bossed around by the barons. So he rounds up an army, uh, the royal army plus the dispensers, obviously, and marches to confront the contrarians. But Roger's allies leave him. So he's stuck there alone and he has to surrender to Edward January 1322. Mortimer goes to the tower for two years. And if you think that's the end of our great rebellion, it is not. He drugs his jailers, escapes his cell, uses a chimney to shimmy out of the tower, and crosses the Thames in a boat that's waiting for him. And from there, it's off to Dover and France, because, of course, the French king, Charles IV, is no friend of Edward's. So, welcome, enemy of my enemy. I was saying to Sarah earlier, Red Rover, Red Rover, let Mortimer come over. (laughs) So we have Mortimer at the French court in exile, living pretty nicely, pretty comfortably. Guess who joins the French court a year later? Isabella, who is Edward's wife, along with 
her son and heir, also named Edward. This can get kind of confusing. There are three Edwards, Edward the first, second, and third. Edward the first is already dead. Edward the, <laughs> the first is out of this podcast. So Isabella and her son Edward arrive at the French court. And that's because Isabella is paying a diplomatic visit to her brother, who is the king of France, trying to sort of work out a deal between her brother and her husband over French land disputes. And she's successful. She she does the job. She protects the English interests. But then she doesn't go home. Because, of course, she's scared that Hugh Dispenser wants her dead. And it's not a far-fetched idea, because since marrying Edward II at age 12, she's been very seriously sidelined, even for a medieval queen, Sarah was saying earlier. Since day one, literally almost since day one, Piers Gavston got all her wedding gifts. So when her father, the King of France, lavishes presents on this international marriage, instead it's of really to Piers. taking those home, yeah, Piers gets them all. And um, some of her husband's other favorites end up taking her English land. So she's being really majorly neglected by her husband and abused by his supporters. And when she's pregnant with her fourth child, she even briefly convinces Edward to exile Hugh and his father, only to have them called back to England a year later. So she's she certainly knows that Hugh is no longer a friend of hers, not that he ever was. Well, and another reason she doesn't want to go back is she has a new boyfriend. Perhaps you've heard of him, the exiled Roger Mortimer. And maybe they've bonded over their shared hate. <laughs> One can only imagine. But they become lovers and start to plan a rebellion. And remember that they're in possession of Edward's heir. Who's a, a young teenager at the time. So in 1326, they formed an army, Mortimer and Isabella. And they crossed the channel and surprised the dispensers in England. And... From there, the tides turned pretty quickly for this long-favored family. Dispenser's father, also named Hugh Dispenser, is hanged and beheaded. Hugh does... Oh, it's grisly. Yeah, it's very grisly. He is dragged behind four horses. He is hanged and cut down just before death. He's tied to a ladder, and his genitals are mutilated. And then while he's still alive, his abdomen is cut open, and his entrails are cut out. Then, I mean, he's got to be dead and then by his this heart. point, because his heart is cut out next. And then his head is chopped off, and then he's quartered. So I would call that overkill. It's very but, thorough. Uh, they really didn't like him. Hugh Dispenser was super unpopular. So one month after routing the Dispensers, the defenseless and abandoned Edward II is captured in South Wales. So what are we going to do with the king? Well, Edward II is forced to abdicate in favor of his son. And technically, Edward III, as he is, is king now, but he's a young teen and supposedly he can't even hold the crown up at his own coronation. And in reality, it's really Mortimer ruling with Isabella. He's just, Edward III is just a puppet. Puppet king. And they last for nearly four years, giving out titles and lands to friends and favorites because that went so well all of the other times. (laughs) Yeah. And the deposed king is whisked off to a Mortimer family member's castle. It's called the Berkeley Castle. And it's there that he's believed to have been murdered. And this is also really grisly. Sorry to be the gross out episode here, but Chronicles later recount that the murder is done by a red hot poker up the anus. Although that recent Mortimer book that I mentioned suggests that this theory is probably wrong. It's probably just been something that's 
wrong and passed down through histories and passed down through chronicles. Maybe it was invented by the supporters of Edward II, people who wanted to to make him out to be something a of monster. a monster. Yeah. No, something of a martyr. <laughs> uh, although I don't know why you would want your martyr dying such a <laughs> terrible, terrible death. But another um, fairly recent theory is that Edward wasn't killed at all and that maybe he lived for decades in obscurity or prison and who knows. But for our story, he's out of the picture. People always like to believe that their deposed kings are still off somewhere living kingly lives. But the barons are not pleased with Mortimer's takeover and his behavior. They think he's very greedy and arrogant. He has unpopular policies regarding Scotland. Everyone hates him, as Sarah wrote in her outline. <laughs> and knowing full well the kind of stunts that traitors pull, after all, he had Edward II killed, he keeps a bodyguard at all times and watches his back. But you would think that he, because he is so unpopular, would try to make nice. Tone things down a little, at no. least. And in 1330, he orders the execution of Edmund, Earl of Kent, who is Edward's uncle and very popular. So a lot of the barons take this as a sign that he's starting to neutralize the royal family and that maybe he's about to go for the crown himself. So the Earl of Lancaster, who used to be Mortimer's ally, remember, and a few other barons encourage Edward III, who has grown up in the meantime, of course, from a young teen to a young man. They encourage him to fight for his rights as king. And he's 17 by now. He's ready to be unshackled, ready to stop being this sort of embarrassing puppet king and ready to claim his real crown. So when the royal household is at residence in Nottingham Castle on October 1330, he makes this move. He gets together a gang of supporters and they sneak in to the castle, led by a couple members of the household. And they have a tunnel. They have a tunnel because, of course, Mortimer has this bodyguard, so you can't just face him up front. They go through a tunnel, which is actually still called Mortimer's Hole, and they catch Roger and Isabella in her bedroom. And from there, Roger's arrested, taken to the tower, and quickly sentenced to death without a trial. He's executed November 29th, 1330 in Tyburn, and he's stripped and hanged, which wasn't a nobleman's death. Oh, gosh, it doesn't sound as bad as Hugh Dispenser. Exactly. I'd I'd rather have anything but that. And the executioner reads Psalm 52. The tongue devises mischiefs like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good and lies more than honesty. And his own son, Geoffrey, calls him the king of folly. So... That's it for our greatest traitor, but we have to catch up with Edward III, too, and and certainly wonder, what does he do to his mother? Because she's certainly implicated in all of this, but on the other hand, maybe he could partially understand how wrong <laughs> she had been. So Edward III must have been okay with her, to a certain extent. He allows her to retire into the country, just sort of politely ignoring the fact that she was lovers with the traitor who killed his father. And she lives in the country for three decades. She's got plenty of money. She's got her titles. She's the queen dowager in every sense. And he comes into his own and works to make England powerful again. His reign kicks off the Hundred Years' War with France and also indirectly the Wars of the Roses as the descendants of his seven sons and five daughters duke it out for generations starting in the 15th century. Yeah. So 
That's it for this brief age of treason. It, I, I think it's interesting. The last rebellion we talked about, the Chung sisters, that lasted about three years too. I guess that's the, the going rate for your, for your average rebellion. But this is, is far gorier than our, our Chung so. sisters episode. <laughs> so while I was researching this podcast, I actually spent a little time on the Berkeley Castle's website, which is still existent. It's, nice and thick stuff and they host weddings and private events but I think it is funny they mentioned pretty early on in their website literature that it is the death site of Edward II it must have been a nice alternative to reading about all this gross stuff to look at a castle website yeah just look at some castles and nice landscaping but if you'd like to learn more about castles we have a great article on it how castles work You can search for it on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. We also have a Twitter feed at Mist in History and a Facebook fan page, so come and find us. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 